stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. You probably recall a couple years ago, 2019, uh, shortly after being elected, the uh, Alberta government, uh, the UCP government, followed through on, well, a couple of promises. One was to set up a so-called war room, the Canadian Energy Centre. That's had its share of controversy. And they also launched a public inquiry. Now, this was sort of a a two-pronged fight-back strategy. Uh, So the war room was meant to to respond to claims being made about uh, Alberta's energy sector, the oil sands in particular. And the uh, public inquiry into anti-Alberta energy campaigns was about investigating those that were making those sorts of claims about the oil sands. Or more particular, I guess, the notion that there was a substantial amount of foreign funding of environmental groups in Canada that were campaigning against the oil sands. And maybe there was a more sinister motive to some of that funding. So July of 2019, this inquiry was launched. And we haven't really heard much from it. They did submit an interim report, by the way, that the government is sitting on. But when you think public inquiry, you think hearings and testimony, and and it's all very public and very visible. This has been the opposite of that. What we do know is that the commissioner, Steve Allen, has now asked for three extensions. So instead of wrapping up in July of 2020, this may or may not wrap up by May 31st. Friday night, 9 p.m., the announcement came out that another extension had been granted. So what's been going on here? Well, and that's where our next guest comes in, because something else we learned on Friday night was that uh, lawyer and and writer Sandy Garasino had met with and had conversations with Steve Allen to talk about some of her work and some of her research into these sort of fundamental questions here. Now, joining us to talk more about it is uh, the aforementioned uh, Sandy Garasino. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. So it's interesting because you had conversations with, you met with Steve Allen. This was all back in, I guess, late 2019, wasn't it? Um, it was. It was November of 2019. I I have not met with Steve Allen himself. I met with a, um, two forensic accountants okay. that he sent to that he sent here to Vancouver to meet with me. Um, and but I I had a, a long and and wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Allen um, in in early November 2019, and then and then the meeting with the accountant later okay. that month. So, in terms of why this has all come out now, so my understanding is there's a professor at the University of Calgary who has applied to be a participant in this. He uh, suggested then that uh, the, the commission reach out to you to inquire about some of the work you've done into this topic, and that's when they said, oh, well, we've already talked to her. Is, is that how it went? Roughly. I mean, that, yeah, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> a pretty good summary. I had done a, um, a lengthy piece. So I spent many months diving long and deep into the issue of, of um, uh, foundation grants generally across all sectors and was able to draw out information about a little bit more context to the to uh this controversy here in in, in alberta 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, we'll let people know you wrote about all of this. Uh, it's at nationalobserver.com if folks want to read your piece, because I get the sense that when they first reach out to you, it seemed very genuine, that they wanted to get a better understanding of this. They were looking at talking to, to uh, numerous you know, different people, different perspectives and all of this, and that maybe your perception has, has shifted a little bit over the last couple of years here. Well, it's, I mean, I'm still a little bit, to be honest, befuddled by what I'm seeing, because now I don't really have much more of a window than anybody else does. In fact, I don't. I've only had um, the one lengthy conversation. And Mr. Allen struck me at the time as a, you know, as a, as a straight shooter who was interested in, you know, he wanted to deliver uh, a, a report and, and to have an inquiry that was, uh, that was a real good faith, open, um, um, situation for for all parties and and that was going to be an honest broker approach to it uh, it's, it's hard to tell if that opinion has changed if he has uh, experienced other pressures because you know obviously the premier has pretty much announced the conclusions of the of the inquiry before before the inquiry mm-hmm. even started uh, so it's, it's hard to tell where Steve Allen lies today, uh, what, what his what his true mindset is at the moment. Uh, but he still has not got direct information or or contacted or attempted to contact any of the major principals who are affected by this. And it's interesting because you know you. You sat on this, right? There, there was a confidentiality agreement, or maybe not signed necessarily, and you can speak to that, but you, did you feel kind of blindsided by this revelation on, on Friday, or, or maybe speak to that if you can? Well, I was, I was blindsided, because when I first, uh, when I first, uh, when he first reached out to me, and we had our conversation, and it was on the condition that this was confidential, and this was in, in really in, in order to enable a um, uh, an honest and, you know, unguarded, shall we say, if everybody is come to, coming to the table in good faith, you kind of want to have that relationship. You want to, to feel that degree of trust that it's not going to end up on Twitter the next day. And, you know, it would be, it would blow up in his face too. But me being, uh, I mean, I'm an opinion, opinion columnist who does a lot of research-based uh, long read work. Well, it would it would not be good in that environment for for it, it to appear that in some way I I am either collaborating or that I'm doing anything. So it, all of this, I think, it was in both of our interests that this be um, that, that this be a confidential communication. Uh, and then and then he disclosed it. So I felt that I had to explain, well, what was the nature of that relationship and what did I do and 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 say and what were, and what were our communications? Well, let's take a step back, because, I mean, the reason they reached out to you, presumably, is because you had been researching this very question. So work you had done was relevant to what this commission is supposed to be looking at, this question of foreign funding to to. Environmental groups based in Canada. What what got you interested in in that question in the first place? Um, although I I write for the National Observer, which is perceived perhaps in Alberta as being um, a, an environmentalist mouthpiece, uh, um, 
my my that's not my world i'm not really from the environmental community but i am concerned about uh, free speech and freedom of association and i have been i have watched this narrative develop um, for a long time and I, it has always struck me that the narrative was fundamentally biased that it omitted key crucial information that would I think relieve a lot of Canadians and would would relieve a lot of Albertans if they understood it. So I have I have watched it closely, and and I know about the foundation world, and I understand finance, and I understand charitable and nonprofit finance, perhaps in a way that a lot of other media observers, and I think a lot of the the narrators of this of this uh, story uh, do not. And so, what did you find? I mean, is is there anything untoward going on here? In, in, in my opinion, no. Um, I think there are some really crucial pieces of information that are that are missing from the narrative. This the, the grants are not controlled out of the United States. They are not driven out of the United States. The grants are controlled um, and distributed by uh, a consortium of Canadian uh, individuals, and the key. Uh, grant coordinator and has been for 10 years is Sapporo Berman. Not what has been widely thought of is that there's, that there, there's this um, a group out of the San Francisco office that is controlling it. Uh, that, that, hasn't, that has never been the case. The, the grants are applied for and are um, largely controlled by Canadians. The Canadian groups that receive the grants, most of their money comes from Canadians if you pool this money, it looks like it's a lot from uh, American organizations, but it's an extremely, it's an infinitesimal small uh, portion of the granting foundation's budget. The largest funders uh, who are both in Europe and in, in the United States, it's less than 1% of their total grant. So this is not something that they are focused on. This is, uh, this is almost a side of their desk um, enterprise. The climate, um, found the climate grants of the funders that do most climate funding, overwhelmingly their, found, their grants go to the United States, to China, to Europe, to a smaller degree, to India. And largely their focus is about uh, building the new renewable energy economy. It's, it's sort of in that direction. The extent to which they uh, fund groups that engage in activism is largely, and it's a very small part of their total budget, and an as I say, an, an infinitesimally small part of their budget directed to can Canada is about um, enabling and amplifying grassroots organizations. That is the rubric under which these Canadian organizations got funding. And by the way, this funding overall is a minuscule um, um, amount compared to the assets and the resources that the oil and gas industry is, um, and the, the Alberta government um, has dedicated to promoting their projects. And what about specifically, and I know you looked at this question too, the, the tar sands campaign itself, because I know that that's really been singled out here. Yes. Um, well, and I think that that is, that is almost everything. If you look at um, international foundation granting to um, Canada in, in the context of in the environment, almost all of the money has gone into conservation projects. 
the tar sands campaign is almost a unique type of operation. And I, you know, I think Albertans would would should know and should understand that not everybody in the environmental community and not everybody in the environmental community in British Columbia um, feels that opposing pipelines is the is the most important way. Uh, to uh, combat climate change, um, and it's not necessarily their focus, uh, nor is it the focus of, of the foundations themselves. Uh, so the Tar Sands campaign has received roughly 40 million, or did when I wrote in 2019, in the previous decade had received roughly $40 million, or about $4 million a year, that was distributed between 50 to 60 groups, sometimes up to 100 groups. Um, and most of the main funders pretty much um, dropped off. The Hewlett Foundation was the largest funder, and they pretty much dropped off uh, in 2015 when Premier Notley brought in her climate initiative. Uh, when that happened, I think that a lot of the, the international funders felt that that you know the the mission accomplished, and they were on to other things. So now the funding has been is a is a small trickle of what it what it ever was. So this is really a, 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 a blown out of proportion controversy, and it's out of date now. It's it's kind of over and has been for a long time. So after presenting all of this to Steve Allen and his team, did, did you get any kind of, of feedback or were you able to gauge what the, their reaction was to all of that? Well, their focus, the team that, that came to, there were sort of two different, um, two different approaches. I think Steve Allen's uh, hope uh, was that I might be able to be some, have some influence in drawing um, environmentalists in the BC environment to to come and talk to him. And, and I made clear that I really, that wasn't my role as a, as a journalist, and nor did I have the relationships. Like I say, I'm not really from the environmental community per se. The team was interested in my methodology. What database had I used? How had I accessed it? What were the search? You know, how, how did I do right. the research? How did I, right. how did I derive the results that I derived? And that was pretty much it. That was kind of, it wasn't super exciting. <laughs> so now we're at the point where we, we've learned about these conversations. It, it uh, you know, based on, on what they've accepted, I guess, as as reports and, and some of these reports that they've they've shared or posted are somewhat controversial, to say the least. It doesn't appear as though your research has, has been included in that either. I mean, do, do you draw any conclusions from that or what do you make of it? Well, <clears throat> I, I don't necessarily think that the, that um, the commission should you know, come running to Sandy Garasino for expertise. In fact, I think what's been missing, what is still missing, and what is missing from the reports that have been included for consideration and put out to participants for comments, is real expertise about financing in the charitable and nonprofit world and foundation world. What what nobody here is a true what I would call independent expert and nor do i think that the commission has that expertise in-house that's what should have started all of this it should have you know all of this controversy goes back many years and it goes back to the harper government and the cra audits at no point 
did anybody ever commission an independent report from from experts in the field of charity nonprofit foundation finance? Yeah. Had they done that, I, and I think Canadians would have benefited enormously. That's where you start. Bring in experts and independents. And, and, but everybody so far has got an agenda and has got a point of view. I have a point of view. Uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, substantiated by the research that I did. But I would urge and welcome independent expert reports. Well, that would make sense. Uh, I mean, it, it's at times hard to glean exactly what this commission is up to. Maybe that's that's something in the works, and, and perhaps we just don't know at this point. We'll see how it all plays out. In the meantime, again, uh, we'll, we'll send people to uh, nationalobserver.com if they want to read uh, more from you on this. And Sandy, like I said, we'll see where this all ends up, but appreciate your input on all of this. Thank you so much for having me on, Rod. All the best. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. That's uh, Sandy Garasino, uh, writer, lawyer uh, based in Vancouver. And uh, her side of the story here, that she's done some research uh, into this. The commission reached out to her. They had some some in-depth conversations. And then uh, that was that. And uh, we just learned all of this a few days ago. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is your number. A lot more to get to on the program this afternoon. But I want to come back to the story that's really been dominating, uh, the, certainly the financial news. And I think it's, it's spilled over. And people who maybe don't follow the markets have, have certainly taken notice of what happened, uh, has happened here. And, and much of it surrounds uh, the stock in the company GameStop, which is a video game retailer in the United States. Now, there, there is quite a backstory to all of this, but, but the uh, long and the short of it, pardon the pun, is that uh, some big hedge funds companies saw that maybe this company was um, not doing so well. A lot of video game purchases uh, switching to online, maybe brick and mortar video game stores, maybe there's not as much of a future there. So the stock in the company was being shorted quite aggressively, as, as it turns out. And there was a real pushback online. It started with the Reddit community and spread beyond there. And people started buying the stock. Enough so that it uh, started wiping out any potential gains on these shorts. And then these hedge funds had to turn around and buy the stock in order to cover that short. So that just further drove the price way up. And in fact, it, it got to some pretty insane heights when you compare the uh, value of the stock versus the valuation of the company. So as the dust kind of settles on all of this, the, the stock is down quite a bit today. It has certainly, I think, underscored a lot of issues. On the one side, I guess there's the whole question of, uh, are, you know, is, are there any issues with uh, this kind of a concerted push to buy a stock? But maybe more so, it's really shone a spotlight on the question of, of short selling and the amount of power and influence these big hedge funds wield. And is there maybe something to be said for the uh, kind of metaphorical punch on the nose they took in all of this. So is there something to be said for this uh, Reddit resistance, uh, as many are calling it? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, all of these issues is, is someone who certainly understands uh, the ins and outs of this uh, much better than most of us. Uh, Russell Starr is uh, CEO and president at Trillium Gold Mines Incorporated, uh, an entrepreneur and a financial professional himself. Uh, Russell, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. I'm happy to be here. Uh, ironically, I'm I'm from Calgary, so it's nice to to at least get yes. back in voice, but maybe not in person. 
<laughs> well, that's good. Uh, well, we appreciate you making some time for us here today because it, it is quite a story, everything that, that's unfolded over the last uh, couple of weeks here. So give me your, your big picture here of, of what you've been observing and what you make of it all. Well, look, I think the first and sort of foremost piece of information is we're sitting in a in an environment where this is kind of the perfect reverse storm. So you have really, truly almost everyone uh, not working or at least working from home. And then you have this added stimulus check in the U.S. Um, and in some parts of Canada, the same thing. And and people are, are just starting to realize that, hang on a second, maybe Wall Street and Bay Street aren't level playing fields. Um, and if we want to act, we need to act uh, to a certain extent the way the hedge funds do. And, and really, truly, you know, for all the public outcry and for, for everything that's gone on with GameStop, the reality is that these are issues and problems that have been going on for a, for a decade or even two decades, um, even here in Canada. Um, it's only now that this sort of perfect reverse storm is being created that the, the light is being shone on it. So what's the issue here? I mean, it seems like the issue goes well beyond the practice of, of short selling, that, that this yep. is maybe an issue of the big players, the amount of power they wield. But what, what do you see as the big issue here? Well, the big issue, in my opinion, is that, that there's a completely different set of rules that the big guys are playing with. So, for example, if you and I are running our own little private mini hedge fund and we short something and we happen to be on the wrong side of the trade, we lose all our money. But what's happening in the U.S. and what's happening in Canada is that, that we've almost become the product now. And by that, I mean that the exchanges are getting so much money from these hedge funds to execute. So, for example, just to back up that statement, 40% of Robinhood's revenue comes from Citadel. Citadel was one of the largest shareholders of Melvin Capital, which was going under during this short squeeze. Do you think there's a conflict of, conflict of interest there? Right. Um, it's pretty obvious to me. Um, and then, you know, you add sort of fuel to the fire where as GameStop was going lower and lower and lower, and, and just let's all be blunt about this, and the regulators know this, all these hedge funds talk to each other. It's not like they're hedging uh, very, very quietly and not talking to their buddies at their private club. They are acting in concert. And so there were numerous hedge funds that were short GameStop, assuming that a video games retailer in the U.S. would just eventually go out and uh, go under. And then you have this, call it this new sort of more more diversified hedge fund, meaning all of us retail guys who are like, hang on a second here. Maybe we can actually make some money in this in this trade. And so it's it's. It's just shone a massive spotlight on inequalities, on different sets of rules that exist for these, these large, large, large funds who are all intertwined. They're, they're, they all work together. And, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world would have everyone believe that if this had persisted, there was serious risk to the, the markets. But if that is indeed the case, then the markets are broken. And really, truly, that, I think that's where people are going to get to through all of this as the light gets shone brighter and brighter and brighter. And that is... We need, we need to get with the times. You know, people short without a borrow. That's supposed to be illegal, but they do it. They do it here in Canada. Um, and, you know, the, some of the questions I'm asking now, and I, I was literally on the phone with the NEO exchange, which is, which is an alternative exchange in Canada that actually prohibits a lot of this predatory trading by, by trying to level the playing field for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you're going to see people 
gravitating towards these exchanges where you're a little bit more protected, where everybody's treated a little bit more equally. And, and quite frankly, I think that's a good outcome. And it's interesting, too, and, and you mentioned this, um, that, that it wasn't just a, a bet that the price of GameStop was going to go down. The, the way that they were shorting this company was essentially betting and, and almost trying to make it happen that, that it was it was going to, to uh, for all intents and purposes, go bankrupt, that Correct. it was going to go out of business. And yep. how much of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy does that become when you're when these hedge funds, as big as they are, when they make that bet? I mean, it's essentially pushing things in that direction, isn't it? Well, it, and, and that's, in my opinion, what you've seen in the Canadian capital markets. You have these extremely sophisticated algorithms. Literally, Michael Lewis made a book about it called Flash Boys. The Canadian, um, the protagonist was a Canadian named Brad Katsuyama, who worked at RBC. And, and very slowly, people started to notice how stacked the market was against you. Um, you know, an ex- another example I give to people is Citadel, I don't think, has lost money um, ever other than when they've needed to be bailed out because their programs are so sophisticated. Um, they, they would guise it as a market liquidity program, but effectively what it does is it front runs every single order and tries to make, you know, a tenth of a penny a billion times over every day. And I, and I believe the stat is that they've, they've only lost money once in, th- in three years. Wow. And and I, I look, having been doing this now, or at least being involved in the capital markets for almost twenty years, that's theoretically impossible for for us normal folks. And so it's it's look, what I hope comes out of this is that people start questioning their regulators, uh, you know, calling the Toronto Stock Exchange and saying, do you, do you actually know what they're doing? Can you actually keep track of them? Because Honestly, these are these are programs built by the PhDs who taught PhDs who taught PhDs. I mean, these are brilliant, brilliant people creating these algorithms that just move faster than you and I can, um, and it just creates an unlevel playing field. And I think the shorting is just one aspect of it. It's it's also the aspect of you know the lifeblood of the Canadian economy is natural resource companies. It's not manufacturing, and and. We are really struggling here in Canada, um, whether it be gold, copper, silver, oil. Um, and at some point, I, I get it, you're making so much money off of these predatory algorithmic programs. That's great as an exchange. But what about the companies that you're that you're actually trying to support? Um, and so really, I think that's where this is all going. It's, it's going to be a big, big question mark about really who these markets are protecting. Yeah, no, that's the thing. And I think people are looking at this and saying, well, okay, I, I think now people have proven that there's a way to, to push back or a way to, to sort of, you know, smack down the hedge funds if they decide they're going to go too far. And this is probably, I think, going to have some, some far-reaching ramifications. But, I mean, is this a solution in of, of itself? Does this let the regulators off the hook? What do you think? No. Well, look, I hope not. Um, certainly from my, <clears throat> excuse me, my perspective, I'm just going to ask them more and more questions. Because, you know, back to my earlier point, um, I think that these programs and what's happening are so far above what the regulators are even looking at that they just don't even see half of it happening. And and it's just, look, the, the reality is, and, and maybe this is a bad way of putting it, but, but you know, very, very smart people, um, especially the ones who are building these programs, they just do it so well. Um, they do it so precisely and and you know 
I'm guessing the quant group at the Toronto Stock Exchange isn't filled with a bunch of PhDs in math or computer programming. It's it's a bunch of people like you and I are just trying to do their best job. Um, but now only just seeing with a very, very large lens what's happening on Twitter and Reddit and, and Robinhood. So, look, I... You know, I can only hope for what I think is the way, right way to go. But look, I, I've seen it all. I've covered the hedge funds who employ these strategies. And I'm now running a company where I watch that company um, get manipulated by these strategies. And it's just, uh, it's a really unfair, unlevel playing field. And one that I hope, like I'm saying, and I guess maybe I'm reinforcing it almost too much. It's just the regulatory environment needs right. to improve. We need to get better. Uh, we need to be smarter. We need to be more world-class. Um, and I hope that's where it goes. Well, let me put it this way. I mean, how worried are you that regulators are going to diagnose the wrong problem here? That the problem are, you know, it's not the hedge funds that we're just going to decide, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's Reddit, it's social media, it's it's people getting together to, to decide that they're all going to invest uh, in, in a certain stock. And we're going to try to figure out how to how to stop that from happening. I mean, is that a real concern? Well, well, that look. I mean, that would be the worst case scenario, in my opinion, that would come out of this, because the people who are organizing and sim- look, the reality is the people who bought GameStop did nothing different than what the hedge funds were doing to short it. So, so if the if the outcome is that it's the retail folk who are punished, then we really know that this market is broken. Because, like I said, you know, if you have fifty hedge funds that are crowded into one trade, and that's probably not a bad number. Uh, to expose what was going on with GameStop. You know, when you, have, when you have greater than the amount of shares that exist in the company short that company, there is massive risk to whoever's shorting it because at some point, just like you said, they're going to have to cover. But the ultimate wrong end of the stick is them coming down on the retail environment because yeah. really, truly, we're the ones who never get bailed out. You know, it's. It, it, right. I think the stats are, what was it? Uh, I think it's the top... One percent in the U.S. has gotten fifty percent richer this year, and the bottom ninety-nine have gotten fifty percent poorer. Like there, there's something very wrong with that, and I don't think we're probably all that far off in Canada either. Even though I, I would argue we have, a, we have a much better and more socialistic environment where I think people in general are treated better. But I sure hope that that's not the way this ends. I, I, I really hope it, it it ends with a, you know, we we just need to be smarter about how we regulate things and and. Um, what was it? Chamath, I, I always pronounce his name poorly. He's one of the Chamath. He's, he's part Canadian. He made all of his money off of Facebook and he was on CNBC and they asked him, you know, what are you saying? Just let these airlines go under. And yes, the only way that things get fixed is by letting bad management teams or bad trading st- strategies fail. And as you remark, GameStop is off almost, you know, $200 today, 190 bucks. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you there's a bunch of retail people who are feeling the pain. Um, yeah. and yet, and yet the hedge funds were protected to the other side. It, it just doesn't seem right. No, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean, you know, we don't know what the future holds for GameStop. And I mean, it's one thing for an analyst to say, you know, I, I see, you know, the, the trends moving away from brick and mortar. It's a bad investment or, you know, people who see opportunities there. And there's been talk of new investors getting in and taking the company in a different direction. And, and so who knows where it's going to go up. But the idea that, you know, it's being manipulated this way and, and hedge funds are, are just, you know, using it for, for different purposes, you know, at least in terms of maybe how the market should work. It, it just seems so detached from that, doesn't it? 
I agree. I agree. And, and you know, I was talking to uh, the guy who runs the Neo Exchange, um, Joss, and, and he was like, look, the, the issue isn't with shorting per se. It's with how the regulators are allowing it to be done in almost unethically or illegally. Typically, you're supposed to have a borrow to short a stock. And what, what's happened are the funds have figured out ways of shorting stocks without a borrow. Um, and then, and then again, you know, when you get into a situation where you're a, you know, supposedly a very sophisticated investor, you're short a stock that has 130% of the float short, you really should be managing your risk uh, and acknowledging the potential for a short, short squeeze. Um, ironically, the guy in uh, the big short, Michael Burry, um, the guy who was always playing the drums and was, was sort of a little bit weird, Dr. Michael Burry, he was long GameStop because he believed that people were too shorted and there was going to be a short squeeze. So there mm-hmm. are opposing forces that are at work, um, I would say, all the time. It's just, like I said, this is one of those rare situations where the perfect storm was created. Everybody's at home. They want something to do. They've got a little bit of money in their pocket from a paycheck, and they just organize themselves to create you know, one of the largest, most disseminated hedge funds in the world who just basically pushed a stock higher and higher and higher. But again, the point is, hedge funds do this the other way all the time. Yeah. So how's the playing field level? It isn't. And that's, that's, I think, that's the spotlight that needs to be shone. Yeah, well, at least maybe it's a little bit more level, uh, perhaps yes. after the last couple of weeks. But uh, yeah. as we'll see, you say, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, TrilliumGold.com. Uh, Russell, appreciate the insight. And again, thanks so much yeah. for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Anytime, Rob. Have a good one. All right, take care. You as well. There you go. That's uh, Russell Starr, uh, entrepreneur, financial professional, president, CEO, director, Trillium Gold, uh, TrilliumGold.com. So some great points from him just on kind of the underlying issues here that this all exposes. Again, I mean, I don't know that every single Reddit investor who bought a stock in GameStop was doing so to highlight inequities. You know, a lot of people did it on a lark, did it because everyone else was doing it, did it because they have a fondness for GameStop. I think others did, in fact, see some of the issues here, uh, that this, this was being shorted too much, that there was a potential for a short squeeze here, or that, that maybe they see something in GameStop, that they see it as a, as a good investment. So there, there are a lot of factors here. But again, I mean, it comes back to just the amount of power these these uh, big hedge funds have and, and what they can do uh, you know, with this kind of a play. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great mysteries uh, of the 20th century, uh, what became known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. In fact, 62 years ago this month, maybe even 62 years ago today, in fact, that this occurred, the, the bodies of these nine Russian hikers weren't found until the end of February in 1959. But it was clear that, that something strange had happened that led to their death. And it has fostered all kinds of fascination over the years, in particular in Russia, obviously. Uh, the investigation was just reopened uh, two years ago, marking the 60th anniversary. New study out uh, just recently, though, suggests a, a um, somewhat more mundane but unusual explanation for what happened to these hikers. And we'll get into all of that. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon to talk about this this case and the fascination with it after all these years. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Keith McCloskey. Uh, he's an author of numerous books, including two on this incident, Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident, and Journey to Dyatlov Pass. Uh, Keith McCloskey, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you very much, Rob, and a big shout out to all our Canadian cousins. Well, and you're joining us uh, today from the United Kingdom. We should point out, and we appreciate that. Yeah. Um, just first of all, and we'll, we'll talk about this this study, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about some of what's come out recently about this. But let's talk about your own interest and, and fascination in this story. You, you've traveled to this part in the Ural Mountains where this occurred. You, you've written two books about it, as we mentioned. What was what, it to you about this case? Well, it's, uh, it's for me, it, it's got to be the biggest mystery out there. Uh, it's A lot of people have their own pet mysteries, if you like, you know, the Bermuda tri Triangle, you hear that from a lot of people, and uh, the Marie Celeste, uh, um, and the, a big one, of course, is, you know, the Malaysian airline flight that disappeared, but for me, this is, this really is the biggie, because uh, there's so many possibilities as to what could have happened to them, but nothing answers all the questions, that's the problem. Whatever whatever theory you put forward, it doesn't satisfactorily put it to rest, and and that's also I think the problem with the new theory that's just come out. So let's talk about what happened, or at least what we know for sure. So there there were nine Russian adventurers, uh, seven men and two women, it, it, apparently all very experienced. So so they knew their way around, they knew what they were doing, and. Yeah. Everything about it was very strange. What had happened to their tent was very strange. The, the way the bodies were found was very strange. Some of the injuries were incredibly strange. What stands out to you as, as some of the, the really bizarre aspects to this? Well, uh, the injuries especially because um, uh, the two of them in particular, they'd all, they all had injuries with blunt force trauma of various kinds, you know, one behind the ear. But the two that were worst affected had injuries as if they'd been in a in a car crash and you think how the hell could that happen um the others not so much uh, the the uh the official autopsies uh said that some of them had died of hypothermia which is probably they were injured and um the, the, you know they they were overcome by the cold but uh yeah. The, the other unusual thing about it is where the girl who had the car crash type injuries, there was a, a guy and a girl, but she uh, her tongue was missing and, and her eyes. Uh, people have tried to explain that away with animals, but um, again, you know, a lot of people have said, well, they were under snow, the animals wouldn't have got to them. What type of animals would it have been? But that's one of the most peculiar things about it. So whatever aspect of it you look at, why did they leave the tent in temperatures that were was minus 27? Uh, I mean, I, I've stood on the spot where the tent was, and it's barely 100 feet from the top of the ridge. So it, it couldn't have been a full-blown avalanche, if you like. This latest theory of the slab, again, is quite plausible, but, um, it, you know, again, it doesn't answer all the questions. And the biggest thing about it all is the attitude of the authorities, the place, the whole area. It wasn't closed down as such. In those days, you needed a permit to get up there. Um, so what they did was they, they, the whole area was closed off for four years. They wouldn't give permits for anybody to go up there. So you think, well, why did they do that? It, it seems really peculiar. Surely they, they were on a, an official hiking expedition in the middle of winter, lots of people did it. Uh, so why not just say, well, look, you know, something terrible's happened. Take more care. 
but they didn't. They, they, they closed it down. But they didn't close it down anywhere else in Russia or the USSR as it was in those days. So I, f- I find the attitude of the authorities very peculiar, to put it mildly. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you know, th- this is a story that I think, you know, people have followed right around the world, but it, it seems much mm-hmm. different in Russia, that this has been such a big deal over the years in Russia and all kinds of, of theories and conspiracy theories in Russia about what happened. Enough so that there was such a demand that they, they reopened the investigation two years ago, didn't they? They did, yeah. Well, um, it was uh, the Diatlov Foundation, and uh, I helped raise the uh, funds to get the case reopened. We, uh, they had about uh, two-thirds of the funds, and I did a GoFundMe for the balance so we could pay a lawyer. So we had another lawyer come on board to do it pro bono, and uh, eventually, they, to our great surprise, I have to say, they did uh, reopen the case on the basis that the relatives hadn't had a satisfactorily, you know, had, had a satisfactory explanation of what happened to their loved ones, which is true. You know, when you think um, an unknown compelling force, what the hell does that mean? That's what they died of. Um, the the, injury, the car crash type injuries, to me, suggest um, a kind of a, a military weapon. And in the, uh, I mean, I, I came across this story because I'm a big sort of, uh, I've studied Soviet military history for many years. That's how I first came across it about 10, 10 years ago. And there's several military theories, but the Russians had a moratorium. I think they'd agreed with the, the USA at the time not to carry out any nuclear tests. But there's rumors it was all shifted up into the Urals because in those days you didn't have spy satellites and spy aircraft were only just coming into usage, you know, with the U-2 at that time. So it was like hidden out of view. And the Russians had a rocket which had various experimental warheads that carried um, radiation in the warhead, liquid radiation. And that's another uh, peculiar thing about it is if these people had died in an avalanche, so-called, why were their bodies, at least some of the bodies, why was their clothes tested for radiation? Right. Uh, there were traces. Know, the there were traces of radiation found. There, there. Well, there were, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what, why would you do that if it was, yeah. you know, a big, big slab of snow? It's not the first. It's not the first thing you'd think of, is it? <laughs> no, and it, it's. I mean, clearly something unusual happened. So the idea that it was an unusual kind of avalanche that happened, I, I suppose, is is plausible, as you say. It maybe fits some parts, not so much others. Um, and getting back to the point about the tent, I mean, it clearly something set them off, right? Clearly, they, they heard something, they were frightened by something, they were very desperate to get out of the tent. Is that what it seems? It is, yeah. There were slashes in the tent. Uh, one of the searchers had said he made bigger slashes in the tent to get inside, to, to have a look inside. But you must remember that when they found the tent, they didn't know they were dead they didn't find the, the first bodies for a couple of days. So that basically they found the tent and they thought, well, they've, they've left the tent for some emergency, but they're all still alive and all we've got to do is find them. But of course they were all dead, but they, they didn't know it at the time. But it looks like they left the tent in a hurry. But the first question then is the footsteps, the nine sets of footprints 
going down to the bottom to the tree line shows somebody walking at a walking pace, shows them all walking. There was They, they weren't running. They were in um, socks, bare feet, which, which again is pretty unusual. You know, you'd think they'd at least grab some shoes or some footwear to take. It, it's almost inexplicable as to why if you felt there was danger there, you would walk away from it instead of running. And why all go in a line down to the tree line? Why not spread out? So, so that, that was that's yeah. the first thing about it. And another thing I'd just like to say about the footprints, uh, coming back to this new theory, what they're saying is a slab of snow impacted the two worst injured. Uh, a big slab of snow weighing, God knows, well, uh, However, I don't think there was a weight mentioned, but it hit them at a speed of seven meters a second, which is, you know, a big lump traveling at about 21 feet a second and crushed the chest. So, and the effect on uh, the guy who had the worst injury, say, is as if he had lain down in a car park and a car had driven over his chest. So how would he have been able to walk two thirds of a mile down down to the tree line without somebody helping him. But what they're saying is that there was no signs of footprints close together as if somebody was helping somebody else. I mean, apart from anything else, I, I think I think you'll agree with me. If you went out into your car park tonight, fell over, and a car drove over your <laughs> chest, you probably wouldn't be able to go anywhere, no. let, let alone... I mean, it took me, when I, when I was there... It took me in, uh, this is without the ice, obviously, but it was still you know, walking through lots of areas of rocks, loose rocks, but it took me nearly half an hour to get to the bottom. So for anybody to do that with a crushed chest, it's, it's impossible. So where do you think this all goes from here? I, I suspect maybe the, the Russian government will be more than happy to have an explanation they can point to, case closed, let's move on. Well, they've done They're it. Obvious, they've right? done it. Yeah. They've done it. Uh, they've said it's an avalanche, and uh, that's the end of the matter. I mean, uh, I'm amazed they actually agreed for it to be reopened. But the, the, the whole thing is one of, you know, people might say, well, it's all conspiracy theories. Well, okay, but the, you, you, anybody looking at this case has got to admit that there's something weird about it. And the government haven't exactly fallen over themselves to say, we're going to get to the bottom of this come you know, come hella high water, but it's almost as if they don't want anybody looking at it. And there's been a lot of people looked at this, you know, as you say mm -hmm. yourself, there's people all over the world looking at it and some cleverer people than, than, than I have. And each person has their own theory. And But it, not one single theory answers all the questions. It, re right. it really doesn't. Uh, but yeah, and me, look, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it no, runs the gamut, obviously. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I mean, the theories do run the gamut. I mean, there, there's some pretty outlandish ones, uh, you know, and sort of looking at all possibilities. But the, the idea that the, the, the Russian government knows more about it than they're letting on, that, that certainly seems plausible. And, and is that your thinking here? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the deputy prosecutor, he, he's still alive, actually. He's, um, I think he's 96 or 97 this year. And quite lucid, although he's very frail now. He lives in Moldova. Um, but he was saying that uh, when when the um, final autopsy was 
you know, was uh, done and presented to everybody, and uh, they looked at it, and he, he wanted to go back up there with a full team of people to have a good search around the place just to see what the hell had happened. He said, a deputy prosecutor of the USSR arrived in the city that day and closed the case down. And that says quite a lot. And he took, the other interesting thing, he took all the case files with him back to Moscow. So the case file, because this had been one of the long, I don't know, disputes, if you like, is where they think there is another original case file and that the case files are present in the uh, Sverdlovsk, you know, in the Oblast prosecutor's office, is a, a duplicate which doesn't tell the truth, and that the originals were either destroyed or they're still in Moscow. But for somebody to pitch up, and you're not going to argue with the deputy gen general, <laughs> prosecutor general of the USSR, close close the whole thing down. And I, I'm surprised that more people don't. Uh, if somebody said, oh, the ramblings of an old man, well, he sounds pretty lucid. He sounded pretty lucid to me in the interviews he's given. So it, it does look as if there's some sort of a cover-up. So why would you cover it up? And the answer is an, an accident. Uh, the Russians have always been very good at covering up disasters, if you like, because it's, yes. but, well, no, nobody likes to admit their mistakes, do they? Isn't that true? Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, more at your website, yeah. keithmccloskey.com. And you've also got a website specific to, to this and, and your books on, yeah. on the subject, diatlov-pass-incident.com. It's been really great talking to you, Keith. Thanks again for making yeah. some time for could, us. Could I just give a shout-out to, you've got a Diatlov obsessive living in Calgary called Josh. Oh, is that right? I don't know. I don't know if he's <laughs> listening, but hello, Josh. All right. Well, hello to Josh. There so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, Thank thanks again. Much. All the best Thank to you. Take care. All, All right, cheers. There you go. Keith McCloskey, uh, author of uh, Journey to Dyatlov Pass, also Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. And uh, he's been there himself, been, been studying this for years. So what happened? Snow slab avalanche. And the funny thing about that, too, is that the researchers who did the study on this unusual avalanche, it was something, for one of them, it was something that was tweaked in his mind by the movie Frozen. <laughs> no kidding. The movie Frozen sort of set them on this path and they went to talk to the animators about the avalanche, the avalanche simulators they used to do the movie and one thing led to another. Anyway, that's what got them on, on this, the idea of this unusual snow slab avalanche that might explain all of this. Not quite all of it, though. It's and questions will persist. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.